The scripture this morning is Hebrews 10, 15 through 25. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. For those days, after, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession that our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The word of God for the people of God. It's my opinion that the phrase forgive and forget is a load of baloney. (laughs) I say that not meaning to say that I hold grudges because I don't. I forgive easily, and although I do not let the actions of the past generally dictate how my future goes with someone, I have not really forgotten it. Even if the encounter I have had with someone is not necessarily a bad one, I will, all, I will still remember awkwardness. No matter what we go through, you will always be the person who fill in the blank. More often than not, the person I cannot forgive for a lot of, the, for a lot of things is myself. I know I am not alone in that feeling. Although I have asked for and received forgiveness from God and the person I have wronged, I will often hold on to it some something hold on to something simply because I cannot forgive myself. I cannot let myself off the hook that easily. I'm sure that that's just my Scottish and Irish roots showing through, or generations of lapsed Catholicism coursing through my now Protestant blood. I'm not sure. It is easy with that mentality to lose one's zeal for faith. It is easy to slide back into a simple life of grinding away at that grindstone, much like some of the people in the late first century. The book of Hebrews is named for the intended audience. It was written sometime in the mid to late first century. Although its exact author and date are not known, scholars have been able to pinpoint a few probabilities about the book. It was most likely written by someone who admired the writings of Paul, rather than Paul himself. By the time this letter was first gaining mention in the works of early Christian leaders, it was already the 90s. Pope Clement I was the first person in the West to start quoting from this sermon. 
Clement was the Pope from 88 to 99, and as a general side note, there is a beautiful basilica in Rome in his, named in his honor. I was lucky enough to walk past it every day during my time in the city, finally able to enter it during our last days there. Underneath the street level of the church, as with many of the sites in Rome, there is evidence of older churches, even foundations from what most likely were some of the first house churches in the city. In the very lowest level of San Clemente, there is a freshwater spring that still bubbles that would have been used to water first century people, livestock, and vegetation. Pictures are not technically allowed, but somehow this one on the screen magically appeared on my phone. I don't, it was, it just happened. I totally did not take that picture against the law. The Hebrews in this book were most likely people who, whose only real knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures was what they had read in what's called the Sept, uh, Septuagint. The Septuagint is the first translation of the Torah into Greek. It is thought then that with most Hebrew scripture being known from the Greek translation, with Clemente using quotes from the book in his writings, and from a greeting naming the Italians, it is most likely that the book was written by someone familiar with Rome when, and used it to write the sermon. The author of the book saw the audience becoming complacent in their faith. Many of the people that surrounded the audience of this book were not necessarily faithful, and as many of us can attest to, it can be hard to keep the fire of the Holy Spirit alive when those around you are either struggling themselves or just have no interest. It's interesting to me that this scripture came into the lectionary when it did. I've had a few conversations lately about this very thing. I remember when I was in middle school and high school, there was a yearly retreat in the spring called Fire Up. The up was a double entendre for not only getting excited, but also that it was held in the Upper Peninsula. It was held at Northern Michigan University in Marquette, and we would have host families to stay with, and we would attend wor workshops during the day. It was huge. The, the participants filled the basketball arena to, to the seams. It was on the contemporary side of worship so that it would appeal to teenagers and those who were new in their faith. There was always an opportunity to pray with the people if the spirit moved, and there was always an altar call. It was two days of praise and worship and education, and I would come home really feeling fired up. The youth group always went together, and we would share our experience with the congregation when we got back, and everything was amazing. But then we'd go back to school. And I don't know about the rest of the kids, but based on how they behaved at school, I imagine they had just a, the same amount of hard time keeping the fire as I did. Kids can be cruel, and if you show up with a smile on your face for any reason, someone is usually going to be there to wipe it off for you. I might make it a week before I'd be back to my old self, my shy, quiet, hair-in-the-face, oversized clothes, sitting-in-the-back self. It was this type of feeling that many in the audience of this ancient sermon were facing— the author was seeking not so much to strengthen the commitment of new converts, 
as to reawaken the lost zeal and fervor of long-time Christians. The understanding of the role of Christ which he presents is intended not merely for contemplation, but for appropriation and action. Today's scripture is a reminder of what we have received through the work of Christ. The text today focuses on two very important lessons. The first is something that, as I mentioned earlier, is far more difficult than it probably should be. It is more difficult for people, anyway. Though we are created in the image of God, there are a lot of ways in which we do not measure up, and forgetting a wrongdoing is something that can stick with us for years. The first part of the text tells us that even though we have that we often catch ourselves remembering past wrongdoings, either of ourselves or others, God has not only forgiven, but has forgotten. What is meant by verse 17 and 18 is that when we truly repent of our missteps, when we offer our sincerest regret and, and apology to God for something that we have done, God not only forgives us, but no longer remembers it. God no longer requires an offering for the sin. God is able to do that because of the offering and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the king, paid for our sins. And the price is so much that once forgiven by God, they are forgotten by God. Once forgiven by God, we no longer need to dwell in the pain we feel. We no longer need to sit in the shame of what we have done because with true and sincere repentance comes true and sincere forgiveness. The second part of the scripture today kind of tells us what we are supposed to be doing now that we have been forgiven, now that our debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. It is a call to persevere. It is a call to keep the faith and hope alive. It is a call to stir up in one another love and good works. The experience of worship is for a community. It is to meet with those, it, it's meant to meet with those with whom we have something in common. It is meant to stimulate those that have been neglectful in their worship and might need be in need of encouragement. Encouragement, that's the million-dollar word right there, and it often gets lost in congregations. When the original audience was hearing the words of the preacher here, there was an expectation of a short interval between the cross and Christ's return. Even then, they needed encouragement not to lose faith, not to lose the fire of the Holy Spirit, Today, we gather to stimulate further hope and a motivation to live in the spirit of Christ through an interval that has become much longer than originally expected. There's a lot of talk these days that I have heard about us needing to find and embrace the things in our lives that we have in common, rather than focusing on what we disagree on. We are living in a time that is not necessarily unique to us, but it is still just as confusing. We live in a time that is so polarized, you often don't know which way you're going with some people. 
Some of you may be listening, thinking to yourself that this is a message sent from some touchy-feely, fluffy organization. But it comes from right here. Right here in Holy Scripture. Right here in the Word of God. The Word that is written on our hearts and on our minds. Right here where we are told not to focus on our differences, but to come together over our similarities. Not only that, but we are to provoke love. We are to be irritating in our love. To be irritating in our encouragement to do good works through Jesus Christ. Now that is something I can get on board with. I am not anything if I am not irritating. (laughs) How do we provoke love? How do we irritate someone into good works? It's a slightly different direction than we've been given by the Apostle Paul. He directed us to love with patience and kindness. Ugh, what a goody-goody, eh? In March of 2000, I irritated my mother so much about something that she survived a car accident. I was a junior in high school that year, and as of March 10th, 2000, the police could pull you over for not wearing your belt. My mother was notorious for not wearing her belt. Mmm. I know, right? She gave so many excuses not to wear it. It hurts. It chokes her. It takes too long to put on. None of her excuses were good or worked on me. But she would throw them out, and I would knock them out of the park each time. As the day approached, I would say, after the 10th, you're going to start getting arrested, and it wouldn't look good for the pastor to get arrested, or something equally as profound. On the morning of March 10th, 2000, I drove my mom out to the car guy to pick up her Explorer. As she got out of the car, I asked if she wanted me to wait for her, and she said no. She said, drive safe, it's icy. And I said, put on your belt, it's the law now. I'm pretty sure she said something kind of like smart Alec, but not quite Alec, when she shut the door. I backed out, and I went home. Time passed. She didn't come home. I assumed she stopped at the store or something. My brother was home for spring break, and my best friend Sharon was staying over, so it was well within the possibility that she needed to replenish either the fridge or her sanity. The phone eventually rang, and it was our neighbor who happened to be a state trooper. Mom had hit a patch of ice and not only rolled the car, but flipped it end over end. She found herself hanging upside down with her head just inches above where the roof of the car had been crushed in. Because she was wearing her seatbelt, her injuries were minor and were chalked up to some soreness for a few days. In that instance, being irritating in my love paid off. As followers of Christ, we need to build the kind of community that relentlessly and irritatingly suggests the action of love and good deeds are not what creates faith, but what is the responsibility of the community that must gather because of its faith. Even as we are different and see the world differently through our assurance of faith and hope, 
we can create a love that can withstand anything. Though we might be surrounded by those who do not share in our faith, we can come together because of it. In here, our faith is our common thread. In here, our differences do not matter. In this space, in this holy space, it is our trust and honor of Jesus Christ that pulls us closer. It is where we can feel the work of the Holy Spirit and where we can find a way to keep that feeling with us between gatherings. When you come home from wherever you've been able to find a connection with God, do whatever you can to hold on to it. Whether it is a church service, a retreat, a week at camp, sitting in your deer blind, If you have felt, as John Wesley did, your heart strangely warmed, recognize that it is the work of the Holy Spirit and hold on to it. As you go into your lives with people who might differ from you as much as two people can differ, hold on to that fire. Take it with you from moment to moment until we are able to again be here to encourage you to remember our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, and to provoke and irritate love as only brothers and sisters of Christ can do. Amen.